Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. You're looking very uh, very fresh today, I think. Hmm. Have you got a filter on? To make me look more attractive. It is you and not a deep fake. It's not a deep fake. No, no, no. That might be quite a good idea. You could invest in building a deep fake of yourself on weeks when you're busy with the day job. Yeah. Uh, you'd still be around for the podcast. Do you think that would work? We could try it. Maybe it's an idea. And then a podcast could go on for millennia. <laughs> It's a scary thought. Actually, I wanted to say that I did a event at the House of Commons with Adam McKay, who directed Don't Look Up. So what was that exactly then? Well, it was just an event with myself, Caroline Lucas, and uh, Anthony Brown, Conservative MP, and Adam McKay. And it was done. It was moderated by Francine Stock um, with, with a sort of, some MPs. Now, it was, we had an interesting discussion. Have you seen the film? I haven't. I've, uh, I saw a lot of the conversation about it unfolding on social yeah. media over, I think it was Christmas time, but um, he's got a very storied career. He's Will Ferrell's business partner. He is the producer of Succession. He's done countless films. Do you think there's any chance that he might cast you in a film? Let me put it this way. We're we're at an early stage of discussions, Jeff. You know that episode of Kirby Enthusiasm where Mel Brooks sees Larry singing karaoke and thinks, this guy's got something. I know. Was there a moment like that where he saw you and thought, there's something about Miliband? Well, you know, you use the word biopic or biopic, you know, <laughs> obviously when these things are commercially sensitive, you sort of... You don't want to jeopardise negotiations. Yeah, and, you know, who the star's going to be, you know, who's going to play me, you know, it's like, you just have to sort of, you know, all I say is sort of watch wow. the space, you know. Do you know there's um, a Larry David documentary? I think it's on this week. The documentary has been made by Larry Charles, who has worked on a lot of Kerber Enthusiasm and Seinfeld, so I'm quite excited about it. Did he do Cheers, Larry Charles? Possibly. He's he's a veteran American comedy director. He looks a bit like one of ZZ Top. He's got a very long beard. Do you remember Cheers? Oh, yeah. I loved Cheers, yeah. I remember I was living in um, the United States when I was 12 when Cheers first came out. And it was set in Boston, so you had that connection. It was, it. exactly. I was quite obsessed with it for a time. Who was your favourite character? 
Sam Mayday Malone. I mean, I don't know, I think... Did you ever graduate onto Frasier? Not properly. You didn't fancy some kind of farce about two brainiac brothers? (laughs) I played the theme from Cheers on the piano for my GCSE music exam. Wow. I don't know what... We could choose anything, and for some reason that's what I chose, accompanied by Susan Wright on clarinet. You're a man of many talents. None of them very well developed. So... Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. Runciman! I know this is painful. This is painful for you, isn't it? So after six years, uh, Talking Politics, David Runciman's podcast, which he also does, she's played a very important part with Helen Thompson, uh, has come to an end. And we thought we should mark the occasion of a fellow podcaster hanging up his micro- his headphones, as you put it, not his microphone. Uh, just about got there. By having a chat with him about what he's learned, why he's given up, what he's going to do next, what he thinks about the kind of awful times that we're living through. So it's going to be a good conversation, isn't it? And I think it's fair to say that it's been one of your favourite podcasts. What is it that you've loved so much about it? His voice. Uh, No, (laughs) I think it's a kind of quality of discussion, which maybe you'd get in a kind of academic seminar room, but you wouldn't generally get through media. I think that's fundamentally it. And his silky smooth voice. And his silky smooth voice. And of course, we know from when we interviewed him for our podcast that he is in awe of you. I think the subsequent conversations we've had with him have disavowed him of that. Never meet your heroes. There are a couple of people I can think of that have been on the podcast a few times who I feel like my brain turns to jelly around them. I'm so intimidated by their intellect. I can barely form a sentence and and he is one of them i don't think that's true anyway this is going to be uh part of your morning process exactly what's um what's your reason to be cheerful well before the pandemic we'd started to get into the habit of going as a family to the pictures we got back on the horse and went to see the duke with jim broadbent ah and i'd forgotten that it is it's just a qualitatively different experience than watching it at home. You are too easily distracted at home. You, you, you're you too yeah. ready to press the stop button, whereas in the cinema, you're, you're forced to immerse yourself in something. Do you mean you or one? I mean one, but I specifically mean you, Ed. I think that's true. Are you a sweet or a salty popcorn person? I may. We're not going to have popcorn. We're just going to steal our kids' popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Both sweet and salty. <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? Well... It might not sound like a reason to be cheerful, but I had an almost had a disaster of almost Ed proportions on Pancake Day last week. Yeah, I, I read Pancake Day slightly. I'm a good pancake maker, but would have make up for it. Well, I anyway. have. I've never attempted this before, and I thought I want to make it a magical day for my son. So I said to him, "We're going to have a brilliant pancake day. We're going to do an experiment to find out what the best possible topping is." And we got. Oh, any everything from your classic lemon and sugar and then some healthy berries to like Nutella and Biscoff spread and laid them all out in readiness for the pancakes. Then I found a BBC recipe. We mixed up the flour and the eggs and the, and the milk and the, the whatnot. Then came the time to cook the pancakes. Yeah. And it went so disastrously wrong. Really? I could just not, for the life of me, toss a pancake. Well, the tossing is quite difficult, but but could you make the pancakes? Well, I could pour the batter into the pan. Yeah. But any attempt to flip it over, even using the spatula, I just couldn't get it over in one piece. How strange. Everything I made looked like the photographs that you send me of the food you've Not enough flour? I mean, I am very proficient now at pancake making pancakes. Flawless would be too strong a word, but I'm quite... (laughs) I mean, I can literally do it sort of without much thought. I feel that you're boasting here. I am. When, when, when I was attempting to toss them, I had the stance of someone at the Highland Games about to try and toss a caber. As I was doing it, I was grunting like a... T- was it sticking to the pan? Yes. I used up almost all the batter and had nothing that resembled a pancake. And then on the last attempt, I then reassumed the position to, yeah. to toss. Yeah. And... I just ended up throwing hot oil into my face and onto my hands and then yelping. I'm so having sorry. Having to run my hand under the cold water. I found something that I'm better at than you in terms of cooking. I think I tried to run before I could walk. Tried to flip before you could cook. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Stop all the clocks. I think 
Those are the uh, appropriate words in this situation. First, the demise of neighbours, and now <laughs> talking politics. It's too much to bear, and here for... I think you've been calling this the valedictory interview. With, with Jason Donovan. Here he is, Jason Donovan. Hello, uh, David Runciman, hello. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ed. It's an emotional day. It's an emotional day for the staff at the London Review of Books who sponsored your podcast. From what I understand, they might not get their next issue out because so many of the people who work there have had to take compassionate leave. They're feeling so bereaved. It is also, I can tell you, an emotional day for Ed. So I'll just give him a moment to compose himself. Um, but you, you just released your final episode a few hours ago as we're speaking. And what I want to know is what was that moment like when you pressed stop at the end of that final recording? Was there a speech? Was there a popping of champagne corks? There was a long silence and then Helen said, I think it's going to be okay. In a kind of slightly emotional tone of voice. Yeah, and then Helen and I had to rush off for a meeting about uh, university academic bureaucracy. You know, <laughs> literally life goes on. We didn't have time to get mournful well we got mournful but that was more to do with the university are you uh, are you still processing them a bit i mean not really actually so the, the weird thing is so we thought um it was at the start of the year we thought everything has a shelf life you can't carry on forever uh, that we would start thinking about because we'd gone to once a fortnight and we didn't want it to sort of dribble away so we thought we'd have a sort of three month wind down so it's not like we suddenly just woke up last week and thought enough's enough but the the oddity of it was of course we had no idea three months ago that we would be stopping in in the middle of the sort of probably the biggest political event of the whole six years that we've been doing it. I mean, that's the thing that threw us a bit and, and made recording the last episode a little, it, it felt a little tricky. Yeah, well, I think that's something we'll come on to, but it's a, it's, it's a funny one to balance in a way because on one hand, as, as you say, it's such uh, it's, it's so seismic, but on the other hand, you can, feel a bit like uh, you're, you're thinking, but how will uh, how will this unfold without talking politics? How will the world cope? <laughs> what will Putin do? Exactly. <laughs> no, we didn't think that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, there's sort of a serious side to it too, which is we've spent six years, you know, like most people, preoccupied with stuff that now feels a little parochial. I mean, Brexit's a big deal, but it's not a war. And quite a lot of our talk was about how Actually, we sometimes thought that it, the the sort of rhetoric had got too inflated around our political travails, and I feel that more strongly than ever now. I think that that's something that's um, been a, a theme of the podcast. You can never contextualise history when you're in the middle of it, of course, yeah. but as much as you can, I think that's been something you've tried to do over the years. Yeah, and that's why, in a way, an actual old-fashioned horrific war feels different. You don't want to be too much contextualizing. I mean, you do, there's a need for it, but there's something raw about it, you know, compared to you know, talking about you know, what felt like the most heated part of the whole six years was that autumn of 2019, where British politics was just kind of going bonkers, properly bonkers, a sort of prorogation time. And that was where actually I thought I felt very comfortable trying to say, you know, calm down, everyone. That would be a crazy thing to say now. I mean, you know, I don't feel remotely calm about Putin and Ukraine and nuclear weapons. What made you decide to finish? It's not like everything has a shelf life, but we, you know, we had a, a really enjoyable and intense six years. But six years is a long time, and we all do quite a lot of other things as well. It's you know, like as you do, as you guys do. I'm not saying, you know, we're not full time podcasters. And there was that feeling that, you know, how does a podcast end? Does it just sort of dribble away? Because we'd gone down to once a fortnight, because sustaining once a week had, it was was challenging, and I think we thought that better to to end while well, while we're still enjoying it, which we were. We didn't know the circumstances in which we'd end, and I feel like it was the right choice, partly because I think we sort of sustained it for six years. I would be less happy if we were ending it at a point where we felt that like we'd clearly not managed to sustain it any longer. But I don't know. You know, podcasting is new. I don't know. Some podcasts last a week. Some seem to have been going for about fifteen years. 
You, you tell me, how long are these things meant to keep going for? There isn't a rule book that tells you. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm now worried that you've established six years as the, the precedent. So I don't know that the implication of that for us. How long does that leave you with? I think we've got about another year and a half. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> and and before you started the podcast, what, what was your awareness of podcasting as a medium? Were you a fan? It was a very specific thing, which was I work in a university, Cambridge University, which you know, universities in a not particularly um, effective way, often trying to communicate better. And there was, a, there was a guy who was the head of communications here who was very interested in doing some different things. And I had a meeting with him in which I said, the LSE has got this podcast called LSE Talks, I think, and I listened to it a few times. And the talks were fascinating, but I hope the LSE won't mind me saying this. The production was terrible. You know, it was like completely unedited. So the first minute was people kind of sitting down and moving their <laughs> coats around. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, we have just spent the last minute watching Ed turning his iPad around. There's been all kinds of rustling and I've been professional enough to ignore, but we've just got the facility to edit all that out. Yeah, thank you. And there's always a QA and a at the end. And to be honest, some questions are more interesting than others. You know, you sometimes get a question where you think life's too short, but they left all those questions in. And so I said to this guy, why why don't we try and do a podcast and actually edit it and see how that goes? So, And then to start with, it was a university thing. It was about the 2015 election and it did take off that was the thing i wanted to ask you about this what i love about the podcast is that it feels like you're in an accessible academic discussion which frankly is very very rare to get in other forms of media i mean i hope the discussions aren't particularly academic in the sense that it was more you know i work in a politics department and we, we you know we teach and we do this and that, but we also just chat about politics. You know, we're, it's a group of people who are interested in politics, and the you know the water cooler chats are are not academic conversations at all. They're often about you know what's on telly and this and that. But with people who I always found interesting and you know always sort of had things to say that I hadn't thought of before. I have to say, particularly Helen, Helen Thompson, who has been doing it with me from the beginning. She and I used to talk about politics all the time. And I always just thought, God, I wish <laughs> I wish more people could hear what she has to say, because it's really, uh, it's compelling, but also it's not what you normally hear. But it wasn't an idea of, and I think, if I'm allowed to say this, I think where some universities go wrong is they think that, you know, what, what a university do it should be sort of project out this kind of clever talk. And also sort of you know their role is to be explainers you know people are always saying the BBC is obsessed with this that like we need to be explainers but we've never tried to explain anything I mean and to the extent that people often say but you didn't say what this acronym meant or that we just tried to talk and actually I think I can speak for myself I don't particularly like having things explained to me it's a bit it always sounds a little bit like you're being told what to think whereas a chat is just a chat so I hope it isn't too academic you know, and people would say, what do you want us to prepare? And sometimes people would come with notes and we'd say, please, put yeah. your notes in the bin. You know, a lot of podcasts send you these endless lists of questions beforehand. This is what we're going to be talking about. And we would just say to people, look, we want to talk about this, this and this. But we just, you know, if you want to talk about something else, for God's sake, let's talk about the thing that you're interested in. It's a chat. It's a conversation. That was the hope. And I, you know, I was always pleased that we had a large audience of students and academics who just said, this is the kind of chat that we enjoy. And there were moments when the podcasts have hit notoriety. So I think when you said we should have votes for six-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> how 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 was that for you? Uh, so that one was definitely different from the others. Uh, I mean, there, you know, there have been occasionally it kind of crosses over, and, and jour- yeah. you know, journalists listen to it like they listen to your sure. podcast, and people sure. sometimes. But that one was a bit unusual in that it it became, you know, as my son said to me that the. Daily Mail headline could be translated for me as Cambridge academic ties shoelaces together and falls over in public. <laughs> and I thought, okay, thank you. Uh, so that one was a bit different. I, I, I've been there, David. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I know, but I'm not used to it. That's true. Well, that's what I'm asking. But on the other hand, actually what it made me do, you know, to just show that I wasn't going to be cowed, was to you know, maybe over, overcommit to the thesis. So actually... Yeah, double down. You've doubled down. Yeah, so the, the first new project that I'm doing starting on Friday is uh, I'm going to start working in a primary school with six-year-olds <laughs> to try and explore with them their voting potential. So, you know, the, the effect of the, the mild you. notoriety was I thought, well, screw you. If, if you think it's so Good ridiculous, I'm going to do it. So what are you going to do? Tell us about that. Crayons in voting booths. This is a year-long project to work with. Actually, it's with... So it's not, it's seven-year-olds, I think nine-year-olds and 11-year-olds in a primary school in Cambridge. 
and to see what happens if you don't teach them civics lessons or talk to them about, you know, getting on the school council, but just treated them as though they were adult voters. We're going to try, if it's possible, within the ethical bounds, to uh, talk to them as though they were voters and see how they take it. Who knows? I may, I may come out of it saying, actually, no, I was crackers. <laughs> it was a terrible <laughs> idea. But I'm hoping that it'll be fun. One of the things I always enjoyed about the, the podcast, and podcasts generally, but it applies very much to talking politics, is just how much room discussions and conversations are, are given to breathe in a way that wouldn't necessarily be possible, say, on Radio 4 be that the duration of the conversation or the, the depth you go into. Yeah. And you are a, a balanced person, but you're not bound by impartiality in the same way as, as the BBC is. Now, so on one hand, it's it's a good thing for me as an audience member because you, you're giving me something that I can't get elsewhere. But on the other hand, sometimes I think, are podcasts problematic in that they're part of this fragmentation of the media? There's no question that as podcasts proliferate, they, they're easier to pigeonhole, particularly the politics ones. So, you know, there are a few, yours is one, I hope ours was one, where they're not so easy to to pigeonhole. But around Brexit, you know, there, there were the Remainer podcasts, there were the brexit podcasts, and, and we thought we were rare, actually, in that we properly, not balanced, because balance is sort of boring, but, you know, we had conversations where... Quite a few people have said to us since we announced we were stopping, one of the things they liked about it is that they were never quite sure where we were coming from. But it, yeah, over the time that we've been doing it, podcasting has felt more like the wider media. And I don't listen to that many political podcasts, partly for that reason. The thing that I like, so when, when episodes worked well, I always, you probably feel this too, that it ended up somewhere you didn't think it was going to end up. And we would always say to people, if that happens, that's, you know, if, if you've forgotten your notes and actually we're talking about something you didn't even think that you were interested in that's a good a good episode and podcasting allows that definitely radio 4 does not you know it's it, i think understandably on radio 4 the producers want to know where they're going to end up so that they don't get fired but we we didn't know where we were going to end up i don't want it to be complete fandom but the other thing i liked liked a lot about the podcast was you brought depth particularly historical depth yeah and and also, and we Jeff and I find this too, politics can be incredibly parochial in Britain. And by talking about what was happening in French politics or German politics or US politics, you gave us something. The fact that it was filling a gap, do you think it says something about the way political debate and discussion is conducted in this country, which is quite often ignorant of historical parallels, quite often without reference to kind of what is happening elsewhere and tends to be in quite a sort of navel-gazing way. Yeah, again, it wasn't trying to be because there's a danger that you can do that in a way that sounds like to people you're saying, you know, we're going to fill in the gaps in your knowledge. So we tried to follow what we were interested in. History was definitely, I'm a, basically a historian. History was a big part of it, likewise with Helen. You know, in some of our favourite episodes, I know one of Helen's favourite ones is we did one about the Corn Laws. You know, when so Jacob Rees-Mogg was sort of talking about the Corn Laws, and not because we thought people need to know what the Corn Laws yeah, are. It's probably because yeah. I thought I quite want to. So we yeah. got, you know, there was a real expert here, and we had a quite an interesting, very tangential conversation. Yeah. And people do seem to respond to that. The, the international thing is different in that, that we do work with people who, you know, really know about Italian politics, French politics, and it can be a bit parochial. The Brexit debate, I thought, was often pretty parochial. One of the things we always tried to say was, you know, it's not just two sides of the Brexit debate in Britain. You know, like Europeans have a view of this too. And when you say this is going to happen and that's going to happen, it's not just because they're going to do what we think they're going to do. And they have their own politics and all of that. But we were also conscious that even... You know, though I suspect we we roamed wider than some, the huge areas of the world we never we never really got to grips with China. We tried, uh, we tried to do China and Hong Kong and stuff. Never have done enough about Latin America or Africa. We, you know, I sometimes I thought even though we were more international, we were still very, you know, US UK based. But it's it's hard. I mean, it would be one of the things that in future it would be nice to think there was a possibility of, particularly you know, now really to understand Russian politics, we never did that. Um, initially, when it was called election, I had this brilliant idea that what we should do after the 2015 election was do elections around the world. And because we could find experts to talk about them. And we did uh, the Ugandan election, I think. And 
But I had no idea what I was talking about. You know, I was completely <laughs> clueless. And it, I can honestly say it didn't really work. So we've never quite strayed. We were going to do the Peruvian election, at which point Helen told me to pull myself together. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't want to say that we were this sort of super yeah. internationalized yeah. thing, but we're in a live in a very internationalized town full of people passing through. And, you know, the other thing is just to grab people passing through. So the very first person we had on the podcast when it was talking politics was Yuval Harari, who frankly you couldn't get now for love or money, I don't think. Yeah. It was because he was in Cambridge and we kind of grabbed him. And you couldn't, you know, I don't think we could do that if we were in a different time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um. When we started, Ed doing a podcast was a novelty. So a politician mm. doing a podcast, there, there wasn't much of that about. And now, yeah. They, now it's a novelty if they're not doing one, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Is it surprising to you that no serving leaders seem to have podcasts? They have a platform to speak unfiltered. I mean, of course, it could end up sounding like one of those South American dictators going on uh, state television, giving nine-hour public addresses. Exactly. And if you say to them, and you know, if you want to go on for four hours, you're allowed on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you feel about this. So we ha- I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an odd thing to say to you, Ed. We've tried to not have current politicians on because yeah. the kind of conversations that we have – it's just harder. There, there just is a different sensitivity around it. And I'm sure that would be, you know, it tends to be the, the politicians who aren't currently. And Eddie, so you're completely unusual in this. But, you know, there was a period where Farage got one and Clegg got one. And yeah. it was a sort of the thing that you did next. But I don't think it would work. I don't think the format works. The sort of open-endedness of it works for people who are going to be on message. I mean, I don't want to hear someone on message for four hours. Do you think serving politicians would be well advised to worry less about being on message? Well, yeah. I mean, it would be good to have more more of these kinds of conversations. We were going to have Michael Gove as our last guest. He's apparently a fan of the podcast and he was keen to come on. And we had actually, Helen and I had met him quite a while ago and he said he wanted to come on and talk about the history of free trade, a kind of another Corn Laws conversation. And we thought that would be very talking politics, get Michael Gove on, talk about 19th century free trade debates. But given it would have been, so the, you know, the thing before the current thing was Partygate, it would have just been completely bonkers to have Michael Gove on the podcast and talk to him about 19th century free trade debates when Johnson was hanging on by his fingernails. And that's the, the, you know, that's the problem. I think there would have been a time in which a conversation with Michael Gove is very interested in history and has, you know, has got lots of really interesting things to say would work, but the context is usually impossible. You came in, as we've said, at, sort of tw- around 2015, and it's obviously been an extraordinary time in politics. 
I think Brexit, Trump, Corbyn was your yeah. sort of haiku. Yeah, I think we might be some syllables short for a haiku. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't regular at the slogans. Before we get to Russia-Ukraine, what do you learn from having done this for six years about all of these forces of, of sort of instability and change? I mean, I, I, you know, some people say, oh, Ed Miliband, 2015, it was a simpler time, da 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 You know, this is a slightly kind of cliché. But, but, you know, how do you look back on this period? I think you were talking on your last one about... Yeah, we were. We was, were, was, yeah. it, was it, you know, a particular moment of history? And so I'll just, just say a bit about that. Yeah, and I think in some ways it was. And, and maybe we'll come on to Ukraine. You know, we tried to say that there's another way of thinking about it, sort of bracketed by Crimea to now, this thing that happened in between. And a lot of it was tumultuous. And I said on, on our last episode, I still remember, you know, the bit for me, I don't think they're the same. I don't think... These things can all be sort of put into one basket. Trump, for me, was a different kind of thing. The election of Trump made my head explode. In you know, Donald Trump was president of the United States for four years. I still find it kind of surprising that that's an actual historical fact. Well, didn't you say it was the democracy's midlife crisis and uh, yeah. Donald Trump was buying a motorbike? Was a motorbike. And I did say often they did just leave it in the garage and never ride it because it's too scary. <laughs> and sometimes they do ride it and they crash it. <laughs> Yeah, and but the, you know, there were some moments where you think, wow, we really are going off the deep end. But on the whole, I think what we experienced, particularly in the middle of these things, was if you try and take that slightly wider perspective, you get a sense that a lot of this is is more contingent than it looks. You know, it, 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 there were moments in the last six years where people said, "There's this kind of coming together of forces, and it's a there's a sort of direction of travel here, either you know, literally off the cliff into fascism, or you know, some promised land that if we could just elect this guy, I won't say which guy it is, you know, Nirvana will be here." And we wanted to pull it apart a bit. So partly pull it apart; these aren't the same things, and then partly connect it to what happened before. The world didn't change in. 2007-8 with the crash, it didn't change with Brexit and Trump. These things are explained by what happened before. Having said all that, I do think that period, particularly of surprising election results, you know, the, the night after night at three in the morning, I'm thinking, what just happened? Mm. Um, I'm 55, so I've had a lot, I've seen a lot of elections. I've been interested in politics my adult life. The last six years, definitely different. I mean, definitely a different kind of experience of surprise and and you know sense of both possibility but also fear but i do think it's not the same as what's going on this week and and you sort of said at the beginning um bad week to give up podcasting <laughs> for, uh, either a good week or a bad week right? <laughs> if, if you were publishing an episode next week how, how would you go about tackling the current situation yeah, and we did talk about it a bit. And I said, I spent quite a lot of time over the last six years saying to people, this is not the 1930s, you know, don't, don't think that Brexit is a presage to, you know, fascism, which it's not. But this is the 1930s. And so there is a, a sense in which, you know, we've collided. These, these sort of historical deep forces are, are in collision in a way that, again, we talked about it, is sort of more familiar from our childhoods. And it's, you know, Trump as United States, there was nothing from my childhood. Helen used to say that she remembered people complaining about Reagan, you know, like they've elected a movie actor. Fine, but Reagan was a professional politician and Reagan was actually in many ways a pretty sound president in some respect. And Trump is just a completely different thing. I could, there's no parallel for that. Whereas in a way, this is all too horribly familiar. And also, I, I think that people have been too doom-mongery about things in the past, but again, it makes me feel like I'm 11 again. Like there's a doom-mongery aspect to this, which reminds me of the fears I used to have as a child. So I think it would be a real challenge, actually. I'm not sure how we would do it. And no one knows how long this is this is going to last. So my 13-year-old son said to me, how many days do you think it will be before the main story is not Russia-Ukraine? And I remember after 9-11 having that thought, and I think it was three and a half months before the first, the, the main story on the BBC website or something, it was not a 9-11 story. This is more like that than it is like the election of Donald Trump. And you, you said something intriguing to me on the podcast, the final podcast. You said you spent a lot of time during Brexit, Trump saying this is not the 1930s. But you then said something about how, you looking back on that, you felt what exactly? 
there was a real, particularly when Brexit then led to Trump, there was a real sort of, you know, this is the dominoes falling, yeah. like sort of yeah. 36, 37, 38. And I thought that was the wrong analogy. I read a book about it, sort of trying to say that 21st century politics, if it goes wrong, will go wrong in very different ways. So it's not like I think, oh, God, I was wrong about that. The way in which this this war is is familiar from an earlier time is because it's a very different, very different thing. But it was more that, you know, I did get wrapped up in that end of democracy debate, which was in its way quite parochial, actually. It was very US-centric and very focused on internal challenges to democratic politics, which may or may not be manageable. But while all, you know, while we were doing that, the world was still turning. And you could say almost that's the connection here, that there was an inwardness to Western politics over the last sort of five or six years. How, how are we going to hold ourselves together? And while we were doing that, the rest of the world was moving on. And so though we, we tried to sort of get a sense of perspective, I still feel we probably spent too much time talking about things that, with hindsight, were not the central story. And I I distinguish myself from Helen here, and not in a good way, in that I don't think Helen ever lost sight of that. I mean, the great thing about doing this podcast with Helen Thompson, and she's just written a book which sort of tries to pull this together, is... I don't know anyone else who is better at pulling together really disparate strands of history and energy and oil and, you know, ideology to make you feel that there's a there's a deeper story at work here. I'm not so good at that. And I think I got caught up more than she did in, in some of the, it wasn't froth at all, but some of the inwardness of Western politics in the last five or six years. Yeah, and everyone has said this, it's a cliche, but there's been a kind of awakening aspect to this, which is we're really being forced to look out, really being forced to look out. I wondered if we could pick a few events that have occurred during Talking Politics six years and you could just give us uh, an off-the-cuff reflection on the significance (laughs) away from the heat of the moment. Okay. So let's start with, say, the Cambridge Analytica investigations. I think we always, I always felt that it was um, overblown. And one of the themes of the podcast was we talked a lot, particularly with uh, John Norton, who's a very experienced commentator on these things about the impact of technology on politics. And the impact of technology on politics is not Cambridge Analytica. It's not Russians stealing elections. It's a much, much more profound thing to do with power and information and, you know, the way that the corporate world has evolved. And I always thought Cambridge Analytica was a red herring. I haven't changed my view on that. Good answer. I tell you, he's good at this. Yeah. Keep going, Jeff. All right, the the 2021 Capitol building insurrection. This is going to make me unpopular. I That was another of the events where I thought the response to it was overblown. It wasn't a coup. I thought it at the time. I, I remember on the night, you know, getting messages from people saying, oh, my God, the world is coming to an end. I'm thinking not very significant event. It's changed American politics. It's not the most important thing that happened in 2021. It is actually one of the things that I wrote about quite a lot, which is the way that the word coup has become overused, inflated, and sort of promiscuously applied. Some really bad stuff happened on that day. It wasn't a coup. What about the Conservative or the UK economic response to the pandemic? Yeah, that's a harder one. I think that it was probably more nuanced than the the partisan take on it would have us believe. It's also can only be understood through internal Conservative Party politics. I mean, Sunak and Johnson and all of that. But I have consistently felt that one of the puzzles of British politics is how a government that handled this pandemic so badly could, until they got into their most recent difficulties, have remained relatively popular. And people kept saying, but look, we, we're doing this worse than anyone else. And still people seem to like this guy and believe him. And until he b- totally destroyed his own brand, I thought it was because the government did a reasonably good job of conveying, not that they were doing the best in difficult circumstances, but that they were genuinely conflicted, actually. Uh, they were very reluctant lockdowners, which meant they locked down too late. The timing was often off. Some of the then the economic responses, you know, whatever it was, eat out to help out or whatever, look bonkers in hindsight. I actually think that kind of conflicted response is more in tune with most people's experience of COVID than this is simple, we need to do this, need to do that, need to do the other. So I think there is some kinds of 
government action, which is on one level a failure and on another level people feel a kind of intuitive sympathy with it. And so, so what's so interesting is that Johnson had that weirdly for a remarkably long time and he just blew it up like, you know, popping a balloon. I mean, it's astonishing. He did not know how lucky he was. Yeah, that's completely right. Do you not feel that there's something in the riding out of it that maybe he hasn't trashed his brand, that maybe he'll come out the other side of it? So I thought when it looked like he might go, that there would be a reluctance of the Parliamentary Conservative Party to get rid of a Prime Minister who'd won an election comfortably in the middle of a hysterical news cycle. I thought that that that, that would be the thing that would give them pause. That would be a weird precedent to set and that he would probably ride it out for a few months. And then everything has changed because we're now we're now in a war. So he might he might survive it. I wasn't ever sure whether he would or wouldn't. I suppose now I'm inclined to think he would survive it. But he had a, this sort of remarkable ability to remain popular while screwing up, which suggests to me that screwing up is not the thing that people mind most. I've always thought the thing that people might most is absolutely blatant, errant hypocrisy. That's political kryptonite. They don't mind lying. I've sort of talked about this in the past that I think in politics, lying is overdone as a thing that people object to. But what they hate is the thought that it's one rule for them and one rule for us. And to even risk it, particularly when you've got someone like Cummings you know, <laughs> taking snapshots on his phone <laughs> of your WhatsApp messages, is just, it's not cavalier, it's just, it's bonkers. Now, obviously, there's a world in which you don't do the podcast, having had this meeting and having listened to the LSE's podcast. How has it changed you, would you say, doing it? I've definitely learned a lot. I think the way it's changed me is doing it week after week. I have a much deeper sense than I had before of how things connect because it's a really rare thing to be able to hear people who are smart and fluent try and make their own connections and then, you know, make the connection between all of those. I couldn't, I don't have some overarching theory of it, not some, at the end of it, I don't have a unified field theory of social and political life. It's all chaos and contingency and God knows where we're all heading. But you do, I have much more of a sense than I used to have. And this is, again, a lot of this is thanks to Helen, that things connect in ways that we don't really see when we're we're looking at what's going on last week, last month, even even last year. I feel sort of more open to, to that. Um, but otherwise, you know, I'm the same person who wakes up in the morning and thinks, God, what's going on? Is there a single conversation that stands out? I mean, I remember the one with Yuval Harari right at the beginning. He'd just written Homo Deus, his book about, you know, the end of Homo sapiens. It was a pretty big, big picture <laughs> apocalyptic conversation, and it, it sort of framed it a lot. We've had some pretty interesting conversations with Adam Tooze, who's, yeah. who, along with Helen, is one of those people who can just join the dots. Completely not agree. in a conspiracy theory way. You know, there are people, you know, Piers Corbyn can join the dots, but not in a way that we want to. But there are a few academics and intellectuals who have a kind of breadth of vision that I definitely do not have. And at the end of it, you just think sometimes when he and Helen were talking about how everything connects, I would just think, wow. <laughs> uh, and then it would finish and I would feel a bit like my mum sometimes does when she listens to the podcast. She said, that was really interesting. I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and I've had, you know, as the host, I've had that. I've thought, I d that was definitely, if I could hold on to that, I would be a wiser person. What was it? <laughs> What was it? What did Adam say? I'm sure the secret to everything was in there, but I think I missed it. God, I'm glad it's not just me that feels that way. And 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 it was the one guest apart from Michael Gove that you you tried to land, but it never quite happened. I tried to get J.K. Rowling on. Uh, this was a bit before she became such a divisive figure. Actually, I wanted to have her on because I thought she was tweeting very interestingly about Corbyn and and Scottish politics, and and also I think she's an you know an amazing amazing human being in lots of ways but you nearly had Cummings on didn't you you had, you met him in a coffee shop or something we did try to and he said he would come on but only on condition that we allowed him then to redesign the entire Cambridge educational curriculum I slightly parody what he said but not to be honest by much <laughs> and he's still I think he's still making that offer someone showed me he tweeted recently and said he was offering to sort out the strikes the university strikes if people would let him maybe you'll come out of podcast retirement if he offers you a sort of one-off I wrote a slightly disobliging thing about him in The Guardian, so I don't think that's oh. going to happen. Oh, Although maybe, I mean, I'm sure he rises above all of that if he's if he's listening. But yeah, so it was, but we, 
in, in a way, we often got to speak to all the people that that we want, wanted to speak to. But I think what's so interesting is, yeah, we kind of share the same view, I think, which is that we, we've had some politicians on and they've been good, but the most interesting guests are the people that people would never have heard of. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you found this, I'd say one of the things that became challenging as we became more successful and got a bigger and bigger audience is that you then get onto the, so the politicians are one thing, but the sort of book promotion circuit, so publishers want, and people have written completely fascinating books and we really want to talk to them and because they've written these books, you know, you get to talk to Fukuyama or whoever. But there's a difference between a conversation with someone and a conversation with someone who's got a book out. If you know yeah, what I mean. yeah, yeah. And it yeah. was, often it worked, but sometimes it didn't. And trying to kind of get them to have the conversation, which, you know, and often they're on the circuit. So, you know, they'll be in the, the UK. But some people were, you know, we had some really amazing conversation with Michael Lewis about his books, and partly because he's such a pro, but you sort of felt this is not a book promo thing. It's, it's, totally. It's, uh, totally. But not always. And actually, one of the things that's a bit of a relief about stopping is <laughs> the publishers are, I hope, going to leave us alone. You have to start paying for books again, though. I know. I've got enough. I've got quite a few to read. <laughs> and, and you've spoken a lot about Helen. How do, how do you envisage that relationship in the future then because you know, i think when you become a habitual listener of a podcast you do buy into the chemistry so do you revert to just being regular com- colleagues in academia is it more akin to an ex-wife is it like a band that have broken up or old army buddies we both agreed that that you know we've done this for long enough helen does a lot of you know she writes new statesman and all, all sorts of other things so i don't know but i'm sure people are going to still want to hear what she has to say but yeah we work in the same politics department and and the conversations that were that preceded this podcast will continue. The water cooler conversations. And part of the problem during the pandemic, I don't know about you, but I think once we moved online, there were fewer surprising conversations because you have to arrange them for a start. I mean, you actually have to arrange them. So you kind of know in advance what they're going to be about. So I hope that we're moving back to people bumping into each other. So what are you going to do with all the time you've got now that you're not doing a podcast on a Wednesday morning. I don't know. I mean, I'm meant to be writing a book. What about the podcasting or even the broadcasting itch, though? Have you secretly had a $100 million offer from Spotify to balance out Joe Rogan? I mean, I, I find it difficult to believe that this experience you've had of being in, in front of a microphone, you've found this thing that you're good at and presumably yeah, that's a good love point. that you won't want to do more of it. There's no question I would like to do more of it. When this started, when I had that conversation, I said, look, I'd always love to have my own radio show and I'm not going to get one unless we, you, know, <laughs> unless you let me do it. And it's felt a bit like that. I've always loved radio much more than any other medium. Um, podcasting is different from radio, but radio is still, you know, it's still an extension of radio. You know, Jeff, I listen to you. I've listened to you for ever because I've listened to you in all of the different forms. I love pop radio. I'm more probably more interested in DJs than is healthy. I love the thought of audio. I have absolutely no desire to do any other medium than audio. That's the way to communicate. That's why podcasting was so great, is so great. But I have no idea what the actual thing I would like to do. If the commissioning editors from Radio 4 are listening, I'm sure they will be in touch. But as you said, podcasting is different. There's there's balance and there's, there's the desire to explain and it can't just be chat. But yeah, being able to do it as chat and, and reach an audience. I remember the th- Malcolm Gladwell said on one of his podcasts, he said, if you write books and people like the book that you wrote, when they meet you, they'll shake your hand. And if you like, do podcasts and people like your podcast, when they meet you, they'll hug and they won't let go. <laughs> and, you know, there is something about the engagement. I'm sure you know it, that it's different. So you should keep going. Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. And uh, thank you for six years of brilliant podcast and i suppose speaking from my point of view i think i think what's really important about it as i've tried to reflect in this conversation is that that sort of intellectual ideas and thinking is not doesn't sort of sit up sit in itself but engages with the sort of world of politics and public life and uh, that's what i think has been so important about it so i'm and i'm sure you'll carry on doing that and this is not in any sense a sort of promotional thing, but it is I mean, it is one of the differences between podcasting and radio, which is, you know, there's a big archive now. It, you know, this stuff is all there. It'll be there forever if people want to listen to Including it. the history of ideas. And people listen to this stuff in schools. But there's also, at some point, I think we want to do this. There's a sort of interesting, I think, historical record. If you pull all the Brexit episodes together, which we probably will do and just put them into a little package, 
and we've spent a lot of time talking about the fate of the union and Scotland and that kind of thing. We've sort of tracked technology's impact on politics. And we're, so we're going to try with the archive to pull some of these together into sort of, you know, little packages of, of connected episodes. And the hope is that will remain of some interest because whatever happens in the future, you know, it will be, I think, of some interest to hear people trying to grapple with this in real time, but also, you know, give it a sense of perspective. You can always do a comeback, can't you? Well, if we are a band. Um, yeah. Well, well, I mean, don't you think, Jeff? Oh, yeah. As Dominic Cummings famously said, let's get the band back together and ruin the country. Sinatra did quite a lot of farewell tours, didn't he, Jeff? We're like Coldplay. We've announced there's no new material, but, you know, <laughs> you know. But although in our case, actually, it's true. You've got Wembley on a on a pencil for New Year's Eve 2029. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thank you both. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. We are. What does the, uh, what's the next few days hold for you? I sort of feel like spring is coming, don't you? The days are lengthening. I mean, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time looking at what time the sun, sunset and sunrise is. You feel we're coming out of hibernation a bit, don't you think? You say it feels like spring is coming. I've just had some friends over from Sweden who who came to visit London for a few days with their kids on half term. And I felt personally responsible for the weather. It's just been rainy the whole time. You are personally responsible for the weather. Do you have that when you have people visit from another country and the weather's terrible? Do you just feel guilty about it? Like you need to apologise? I'm not sure I do, really. I feel like I apologise for quite a lot, but not the weather. So we've found one thing where you're relatively guilt-free and well-balanced. I think so. Um, Well, look, should we thank David Runciman? It was um, a pleasure to talk to him. Top banana. Absolutely. Thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces the podcast and gets all our audio sounding nice. Joe Kenyon from Goldfish has provided all the backup and research and David Runciman wrangling. So thanks to Joe. Um, Runciman wrangling. Runciman wrangling, yeah. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been badly flipping the pancakes. He's been pilfering the popcorn. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 